Well, tonight we come to the book of Judges one last time, and by now you might well have sympathy with my dad's point of view. For those of you who have been coming all the way through this series, you've probably heard what some of his thoughts were in the book of Judges. And remember, he's the guy who really is committed to the authority of God's Word. That would be a big, big thing for him. This is God speaking to us. And yet, even the guy committed to the authority of God's Word was expressing some reservations about judges and the people we meet. There are people like Samson and was struggling to get his head around what these people are doing right in the middle of God's Word. There's nobody who appears to be particularly good in Judges, so that if you're reading this as a morality lesson, if you're looking for people to, to follow, if you're looking for lives to live by, you're going to come away from this book really disappointed. You're going to think, no, I don't want to be like him or like her. And we've got to know quite a bit about the period in which the judges ruled this time, in which the book was set. We've said of it, and we use that great expression, that it was a time when Israel had lost the run of itself. It had lost the plot. People were making it up as they went along. And all the way through, we have identified that this story fits in with that bigger story that runs through so much of the Old Testament. And we see it so clearly in this book that this is a story of the people's failure. But crucially, it is a story of God's faithfulness. So that if you're looking for a hero in the book of Judges, there's only one hero to be found. There's only one who is truly good and faithful, and that is Yahweh, the Lord God Himself. And tonight, as we come to the end of the book, we're going to look at three chapters. Now, don't panic, because I realize that could cause dismay throughout the congregation, ripples of sweet wrappers and all the rest of it. But the reason why we're going to quickly look at three chapters tonight is because those three chapters make up one big final story in the book. And it's a story in which the, terrib the terrible events that happen in chapter 19 set off a whole chain of events that show us just how much God's special nation had lost the plot. So, what I'm going to do as briefly as possible is give us an overview of these events. And then what I would encourage you to do later on is to read this whole story for yourselves, to go home, and whether it's tonight or some point in the next few days, to sit down and read from chapter 19 through to the end of chapter 21. It would probably take you about 15 20 minutes to do that. But as you read it, there is a warning attached. It's a bit like when you turn on the news and a report is about to be shown, or when you switch on a documentary, you may find some of the scenes disturbing. Well, there's no may about it when it comes to what we read here. You will find some of the scenes disturbing. I'm sure some of you have been able to see the ads for that insurance comparison site, confused.com. And that's almost dropped into popular culture, that expression. Now, it kind of conveys 
when we're not too sure what's going on, or when we're in a situation and we feel that nobody else is too sure that it could be described as being confused.com. Well, if we were to give a title that summed up this closing story in the book of, of Judges, these final chapters that we're looking at tonight, they could be entitled confused.com. Because as we read through this final story, we see so much spiritual and moral confusion. We, we encounter double standards and sinful practices and people sending out mixed messages. And that's why these chapters are so immediately relevant to us, because then we think about our society and how it is with us. And we know that we're living in a society that is confused.com, that morally and spiritually people are so confused. So, I would encourage you to turn with me again, please, to these closing chapters in the book of Judges, chapters 19 to 21. And obviously, we didn't have time to read our way through the three chapters in the service tonight, although for a short while I was tempted maybe to try and do that. But we did read some of the verses in chapter 20, which comes at the midpoint of this final story. And while we read from that chapter, it is so important that we don't shy away from or ignore the absolutely terrible incident that we read about in chapter 19. It's this incident that sparks this chain of events that are so totally destructive to God's people Israel. And at times it will be hard for us to make sense of all that takes place at the end of the book of Judges, but let's keep one very important thing in mind. When we're thinking about why Israel was in such a terrible state, well, the explanation is given to us. If you keep in mind that the final story in Judges begins at the start of chapter 19, and it carries on to the end of chapter 21, well, look at the way in which that story begins and ends. It begins in chapter 19, verse 1, with the statement, in those days, Israel had no king. And then the, the writer elaborates on that right at the very end of this story, indeed the end of the book. If you look right at the end in chapter 21, verse 25, he adds, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And you'll recognize that because that has been a, re a repeated phrase in the book, and it occurs more often the, the further we go into the book, so that we read it many times here in chapters 17 to 21, that in the absence of any authority, people were making it up as they went along, and we really get to see this tonight. So, if we go back to chapter 19, there we're introduced to a Levite. That means that he was an Israelite. He was from one of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi. And the thing that we know about the Levites is that they were set apart as a tribe to be the priests of Israel. They had an important job. And we discover that this Levite had a concubine. Now, what's a concubine all about? 
Well, a concubine was not quite a wife. She didn't have that full wife status. But this was a practice that was common in Israel at this time, but it was certainly not in accordance with the Lord's will and His commands. We discover that this concubine had been unfaithful to the Levite, and she'd left him, and she'd gone back to her parents' home, and he went to her father's home in order to win her back again. He wanted to bring her back into his life. And in fact, there's a a nice wee grace note here in the midst of all of the chaos and the confusion of this final story. Because maybe you you think that sounds kind of familiar, and it is. It has parallels with what happens much later in the Old Testament when we meet the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And remember that Hosea's wife, Gomer, was unfaithful to him. In fact, she became a prostitute and left him. Yet yet Hosea went after her and tried to win her back, woo her back, and win her affection once again. And of course, this is a picture of how it is with the Lord and Israel, that Israel had turned its back on God, had chased after other gods, and yet the Lord would not let it go. The Lord went after His people and wanted to win them back and bring them back into His love once again. So, eventually, this Levite was able to win back his concubine. But the problem then was he couldn't get away from his father-in-law. It was his father-in-law's hospitality that was keeping him stuck there. Um, So much so that in the end, he decided at one point, right, enough's enough. I really need to go. And it put his plans up the left so that he and his party set off at a bad time of the day. They left far too close to the evening, and they found themselves needing to stop somewhere for the night. And here's the great irony in this story in chapter 19, that when they're looking for somewhere to spend the night, they very deliberately avoid Jerusalem, which at that time was not a city of the Israelites, but belonged to the Jebusites, and so therefore it was untouchable in their mind. No, we'll not go to that foreign place. We'll go to a good Israelite town. And they settled on Gibeah, an Israelite settlement that belonged to the people of the tribe of Benjamin. And it all started off so well, as they would have expected, they were offered hospitality by a man, they were brought into his home, and then things take a very sinister turn. If you look back at chapter 19 and verse 22, and we discover some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we, as the ESV puts it, can know him. And that's in a sexual way, and we're not going to go too far down that tonight. There are little ears here, but you get the idea. You get a clear idea of what exactly is going on here in this moment. And then we see the first bit of moral confusion 
This man is horrified. He knows that what they're asking to do is a very wicked thing. But then what does the man of the house do? He offers his own daughter and the Levite's concubine to these men, which of course is very hard for us to contemplate. And we can't imagine the ordeal that this poor woman went through that night, but the attack was so brutal that she had died by the next morning. And what happened next will seem bizarre to us, but it was a powerful message from this Levite to the whole of Israel. It was a message that was impossible for Israel to ignore, that he cut the dead concubine into 12 pieces, and he sent them out to various areas representing the 12 tribes, because he wanted the whole of Israel to know what had become of this poor woman at the hands of the Benjaminites in Gibeah. And as you can imagine, the outcry was great. Look at verse 30 in chapter 19. We're told that everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it, consider it, tell us what to do. And I just want us to pause there for a moment and to consider their response. Because in their response, we actually get to see God's grace in giving to His people what we could describe as a moral compass. That there was still for them a sense of right and wrong. That even in the midst of this time, when people were making it up as they went along, there were things that were beyond the pale. There was a real sense of revulsion. And thankfully, the same is true in our time of moral confusion, that there are still things that can cause an an outcry. There are still things that give people a sense of revulsion. And so, what we read in chapters 20 and 21 are the terrible consequences of such a wicked act. And again, we get to see moral and spiritual confusion as people make it up as they go along. First of all, if we look very briefly at chapter 20, because parts of it have been read already, and the Israelites know that these wicked men in Gibeah need to be punished. So, they go to the tribe of Benjamin, and they ask them to give up the offenders. Give us these men so that they can be punished, so that we can do to them what they deserve. But instead of doing the right thing, the Benjaminites, for whatever reason, dig their heels in. And so, here is the result, the chaos that ensues in the rest of this chapter. Beginning in verse 13, the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. And we're told they mobilized 26,000 swordsmen. And here's the response then from Israel. Israel, apart from Benjamin, apart from that tribe, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fighting men. So, that civil war, a war among God's own people, becomes absolutely inevitable. And as we were able to read, when it happens, the retribution of Israel against wayward Benjamin was swift 
and it was absolute. Gibeah was flattened to the ground. God's people against God's people. What a confusing and sad picture. And as we complete the story, then in chapter 21, if I just highlight the key events there, the Israelites then break fellowship with Benjamin because of their rebellion. And one of the consequences is they vow never to offer Benjamin wives again. They say, we're not going to give you our daughters. You're a tribe that is basically dead to us. You're not going to get your wives from us. And they they stick to their vow. They see it through. But then as the chapter goes on, they also desire to offer grace and to make peace with what is, after all, a brother tribe. There are steps towards unifying the people of God once again. So that there's this funny thing where they say, well, we're not going to give you wives, but I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll help you to find wives. We know what you can do. And yet, look at the way that they go about this. So that if you look at that final chapter, chapter 21, in verse 20, the Israelites, who were so outraged at what happened in Gibeah, now tell the Benjaminites, oh, this is what you should do, go and kidnap young women from Shiloh. And when you do it, we'll support you in in your actions. If you get any trouble from the men in Shiloh, just say, no, all our brothers in Israel told us to do this. And in one sense, as they start out trying to help their Benjaminite brothers, their intentions are actually good. They're trying to achieve the reconciliation of God's people, Israel. But those good intentions lead to some very bad things being done. So then, what are we to make of this final long sorry story in the book of Judges? Well, surely it brings us back to the key lesson that we have been learning all the way through this series, and it brings us back to that bigger story that we have seen running all the way through this book, that story of the people's failure and God's faithfulness. And the first part of that, the people's failure, is all too clear to see. They are morally confused. Even when their intentions are good, they do some very bad things. Weak people are exploited throughout this long story. And there's ample evidence of how God's wayward people had lost the run of themselves. But then, what about God's faithfulness? Where is it possibly on display in this final story? You might conclude that there could be no indication of God's faithfulness at all in these sorry events. And when we get right to the end of the chapter, right to the end of the book, it's certainly not a case of they all lived happily ever after. In fact, the end of the book is, wait for it, you've guessed it, completely unsavory. It ends in chapter 1, verse 23, 
with the Benjaminites kidnapping the girls of Shiloh, and they were girls, kidnapping them in order to be their wives. So that right at the end of this, the writer concludes in verse 25, the final verse of the book, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. So, in the midst of this car crash, where is the indication of God's faithfulness and His grace? Well, it's in the fact that throughout this book, and even in this story, the Lord was keeping His long-term promises. We need to go right the way back to the book of Genesis to see this. If you go back with me to Genesis 28, and we'll read verses 13 and 14. And these are words spoken by the Lord to Jacob when he was making a covenant with that man. Remember that Jacob was also known as Israel. That's important. That his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And remember what the Lord said to him. Genesis 28, 13, he says, "'I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham,' and the God of Isaac, I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Maybe you're thinking, well, how possibly are the people of the earth blessed by the offspring of Jacob? How are they blessed by the people of Israel in these terrible events that we're reading here tonight? The girls in Shiloh were certainly not blessed. But all of this, part of a plan that was leading to Jesus and to a light to the Gentiles, a blessing to the whole world, to us, include it. And you think of the many times in which it could have been broken. You think of the many times in which Israel could have fallen apart, and yet there was the Lord keeping His promises. In fact, His faithfulness is seen in the very fact that there was still an Israel at all. Because as we have read story after story, as we've read of rebellious act after rebellious act, sometimes you must have been inclined to think, as I've been inclined to think, why did the Lord bother with them? Why didn't He just wipe the whole lot out? These failing people? Well, because they were His people, a covenant people. And then what the confusion and the chaos of this final story teaches us? Well, surely it teaches us of the need for a Savior. In fact, and this is ironic, as you read all these events tonight, perhaps you're even inclined to think, well, come back, Samson, all is forgiven. I mean, we thought you were bad, but then we get to this. And there's something in that, that Samson was sent to be the Savior who would begin 
to rescue God's people from themselves. And then he was off the scene. And look at what it's like after that. It also reminds us of the need for a king. This was the time of the judges. And we have met many of them along the way, Samson included. But I wonder, did you notice one notable thing about these chapters? If you read them later, hopefully you will notice this. There is no judge. And we know that there was no king. That's what we're told right at the end of this story. So that we get to see the chaos that there is when there is a lack of authority. And we see that as well in our nation, in our world. We see it at times in our lives when we do not have a king at the center of our life and our heart governing every aspect of it. So, who can do this? Who can be both a Savior and a King? Jesus. And so, there you have it. That is the book of Judges. It's been quite a journey, hasn't it? I wonder what camp you're in tonight. Are you in the, wow, I'm lost for words, but that was better than sitting down to watch a box set or something on Netflix. That was amazing. Or maybe some of you are in the camp, I'm glad that's over. And hopefully now Philip can move on to a nice wee Sam or a bit of Paul for a while. But consider this as we finish. Is this not our story? A people who have failed and who are still failing. Sinners in need of so much forgiving and transforming grace that would save us and change us to be the people that God has called us to be. And tonight, on this Communion Sunday, for those who have bowed the knee before Christ, people who have met with and now belong to a faithful God in Christ. This gets us right to the heart of what we have been remembering and celebrating here today. It brings us right to the heart of what we're expressing thanks for tonight. Amen.